Hello and welcome to the Spectator Literary Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the books editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about the age-old activity of getting out of your head. Jules Evans is the author of The Art of Losing Control, A Philosopher's Search for Ecstatic Experience. Welcome, Jules. Thank you for having me. You describe yourself at the outset of this book about, you know, the business of losing control and ecstasy as being a recovering stoic. What do you mean by that? Well, um, the the first book I wrote was about how people use ancient Greek philosophy uh, in modern life, uh, and particularly uh, Stoic philosophy, and how Stoic philosophy inspired cognitive therapy. So, you know, I had various emotional problems from 18 to 24 or so. And one of the things that really helped me was Stoicism and cognitive therapy. So I used that kind of philosophy to, to, to come out of a kind of anxiety and depression and then have spent the last few years doing talks about you know Greek philosophy in all kinds of places you know schools prisons rugby clubs and so on and you know have been part of this revival this unlikely revival of stoic philosophy which I don't know if you've seen but it's quite more in, in our culture than it used to be but I've, I kind of came to realize the limits of that philosophy the limits of the kind of Greek rationalist approach to the good life, that it's too individualist, lacks community, lacks a sense of festivals, that it's actually too rationalist. It's very much about reason is the only way to to the good life and self-control is the only way. So I I, I wanted to explore other ways to flourishing. So you... um, you know, I think you, you've written on kind of the classics and so on and on, on ancient culture. You'll know that in ancient Greek and Roman culture, they had this sense of the value of rational philosophy, but they also had a sense of the Dionysiac, of the ecstatic, of the value of losing control and going beyond just narrow rationality. So that's what I wanted to explore. And when you, I mean, what's the root of the word ecstasy? I mean, because that seems to have a a bearing on what we're talking about here. Yeah, well, it's ecstasis. It means standing outside of oneself. So um, how I define it is moments where we go beyond our ordinary sense of self or ego, beyond ordinary day-to-day consciousness, and you f- when you feel a connection to something bigger than you. So in the classical world, that would traditionally be to some kind of spirit or God. They called it enthusiasmos, having, you know, you stand outside of yourself and a God comes within you. So if you're a menad, you get filled with the spirit of Dionysus or so on. Inspiration, I suppose. Inspiration, yeah. same kind of thing. So for some people still today, I'm interested in that kind of experience in, a modern, in modern Western post-religious secular culture. How do people go beyond their ordinary egos and how do they make sense of that experience? And you also describe very early on in the book something that you went through yourself, where you had something that sounds much more like almost a sort of religious experience. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, so I guess the the thing that got me interested in this initially was, you know, I mentioned that I'd had kind of emotional problems as a, you know, when I was in my adolescence and early adulthood. And the thing that initially helped me to recover from that was a kind of near-death experience that I had when I was 24 and I was in Norway and I had a, a bad skiing accident where I skied through a fence on the side at the top of a mountain and fell off this mountain and broke my leg and some of the bones in my back and kind of knocked myself unconscious, except I wasn't unconscious. That was a strange thing, you know, in a kind of David Lynch type way. I was transported in, you know, I felt like immersed in this white light and felt basically 
you know, filled with love. And I had this sense that, you know, that basically trauma is that you feel that you're kind of damaged and broken and that, you know, you're stuck in that story that I'm not okay, I'm broken. And then suddenly in this moment, I felt, actually, I am okay. There's something in me beyond the ego, which is fine and kind of loved and, and unbreakable. So that's what helped me initially kind of heal that weird experience. Obviously, you know, that's a bit of a hard experience to replicate. You can't go and advise your readers, you know, if you're struggling, yes, go go to this mountain and and just jump off here. So I was interested in how can people in, in, you know, normal life find ways beyond their ego? And, you know, what is there this greater self beyond the ego that we can connect with for healing. So most spiritual traditions talk about something like that. Moments when you go beyond the little narrow ego into some kind of expanded mind or expanded consciousness. I'm not interested in trying to tell, you know, trying to usher people down a particular religious path or, you know, or even a theistic path. I'm interested in exploring those kinds of experiences. How can people find them? Well, you pull together a whole number of different things Everything from, you know, psychedelic drugs to, you know, sort of tantric orgies to rock concerts to even, you know, that sort of frightening frenzy of war and bloodlust and so on. Yeah. Um, so it's a very wide, you know, wide trawl. Yeah. Is there a, are there very distinct commonalities, you think, between these things? Um, yeah, basically. I mean, there are moments where people go beyond that ordinary ego and feel dissolved or absorbed in something greater than them. And that can be a very good healing and positive experience, which is something William James wrote about a lot, for example, in, you know, in his famous book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. But, I mean, there's also a dark side to it as well. You know, you, moments when you let go of the ordinary controls of civilization, there is dark stuff in our subconscious which can come out. So um, that's one of the, you know, the issues with, say, extremist politics or take psychedelics. We know from new research on psychedelic therapy, it can be tremendously healing. You know, in some of the latest trials, you give someone one dose of magic mushrooms and it, it triggers what scientists now call a mystical experience. So that's now in the, in the literature, that phrase. And that can really help people overcome depression, addiction and so on. But I, I know for myself that, you know, psychedelics can also be traumatic and dangerous any moment you're you're kind of dissolving the usual ego is a bit of a risky thing so the book is trying to help people towards a positive you know examples of this kind of experience and away from the negative examples yeah i mean the the book also seems to kind of fence around i mean this doesn't apply to psychedelics exactly but this sort of idea of addiction as always being a kind of shadow side here as a retreat from the self into Mm. addiction sometimes you say there are these experiences that people get too sort of, they start chasing the high yeah. of psychedelia or, or, you know, a psychedelic religious yeah. experience and that that becomes, you know, itself a problem. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I guess we, first of all, we all have ways that we let go of control and get out of our heads. And we will have ways we do that every day and every week. Rituals, as it were. So you might have a ritual gin and tonic at 6pm or a ritual of God, I had a flatmate who would who would have a bath for about an hour you know <laughs> every day this yeah. was you know you knew that eight to nine was was basically his bath time or stuff and you know any of those ways of letting go of control and of, of kind of getting out of our heads can become toxic and addictive in the US now 40% of unemployed men are addicted to painkillers so there's a kind of, you know, a, a, an epidemic of, of, of switching off the mind and escaping your pain that way. 
you think about to what extent our culture uses booze just as a way of, you know, that is basically how we hold ourselves together, isn't it? That's our kind of our medicine for our, for our suffering. So, so it's always interesting. The cure, you know, if you go to the AA yeah. kind of orthodoxy, the cure for that is to find something outside yourself. You know, there's the higher power and it's, yeah. you know, be it the group or be it God, you know, so there's the... Well, exactly. So, I mean... So what, something Martin Sheen said, that um, addiction is a misguided search for transcendence. So you're trying to you know, get out of your head and you're find, trying to find a connection to other people, but in an unhealthy way. Just like, you know, the alcoholic in the pub coming up and giving you a kind of beery hug. He's desperate for communion and connection. He's just finding it an unhealthy way. The cure for that is to give people a healthier form of transcendence. I mean, that's one of the ways of that. So you know, Russell Brand addicted to uh, heroin, addicted to sex, then he kind of gets very into, you know, yoga and meditation, perhaps dangerously obsessively into it, but still he's finding an alternative form of transcendence. But I mean, the, the one thing I would, I would add to that in terms of getting addicted to ecstasy is I think there are two risks in our culture. The main risk is that we don't really talk about this aspect of experience. On the whole, people are very uncomfortable about it. There's a bit of a taboo around kind of, you know, spiritual experience. So the, the first risk is we're very averse to it. We're just afraid of it. I think most people have these kind of experiences, but they don't really talk to other people about it. But the second risk is um, we become hung up on these kind of experiences. We become like ecstasy addicts. So there are subcultures in our, in our culture which is more open to the ecstatic. Things like charismatic Christianity, things like the New Age things like uh, romanticism as well. And in those kind of countercultures, they're completely hung up on the ecstatic. You know, life is all about the ecstatic. You think about romantic poets, they're all about the next epiphany. And when they're not in those epiphanies, they're feeling depressed. So Wordsworth says, you know, I'm sad at the thought of raptures forever flown or something. So that's the risk of it. And what I'm trying to find is like a kind of equanimity, a balanced attitude where these kinds of experiences happen in life, and particularly in, in spiritual life, but they're not everything. If you, know, if you end up fetishizing them, then you've, you've kind of made another mistake. But one of the things you, you did quite bravely is, you know, you, rather than just writing about these things from the outside, you went and sort of tried out these various yeah. things. And can you tell me about some? I mean, where did they push you out of your comfort zone? What did you find effective? I mean, I, I would feel yeah. pretty awkward, as you did you know, going to one of these sort of way out sort of tantric experiences yeah. and primal screamy stuff. And yeah. there's a memorable bit of someone, sh- you find yourself opposite, some guy is shouting, I hate you, you're a ginger bearded wanker or something, you know. Yeah, um, exactly. It was, it was a kind of Osho style encounter session where you're meant to let it all hang out and stuff. Partly the, the reason I wanted to do that was sometimes when academics write about these things, they only do it from kind of third person objectivity they're very wary about bringing in their own experiences. So even William James, when he, he kind of, you know, quietly talked about his own spiritual experiences, but he said, a friend I know, you know, he, he, wouldn't, he was afraid that if he talked about his own experiences, he was exposing himself. Which is sort of, well. you know, setting out from this sort of enlightenment paradigm, isn't it? That's not... Yeah, you know, I mean, and, and, and it's just kind of uptight and you're just studying other people, you yeah. know, like through, through the microscope, you know, you're, you're the, the rational person, you know... Um, so I, I wanted to study these things both from like the first person, so my own experiences and other people's, and also from the third person of science, history and culture and so on. And I also, I just think there's something quite 
you can be over solemn and over pompous about like the spiritual journey and often it is ridiculous you find yourself in ridiculous kind of situations like you know an ecstatic dance session or some some weird tantra festival where everyone's in their 60s and things so usually that kind of ridiculous aspect of a spiritual search doesn't get into you know these po-faced new age books so I wanted to talk about that that often you do think what the hell am I doing here but in terms of what I found most helpful I mean one of the things I did was I started going to church for like two years. I'd never really done that before. So I explored this kind of charismatic Christianity that... That's Holy um, Trinity Brompton, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. And I guess I, I came away impressed with the kind of Christian infrastructure for transcendence. Like, um, you know, the, the, how good they are in a way at creating community, at creating a space for people to be open to, like, you know, the ecstatic. And they kind of got you for a bit as well, didn't they? Well, it got me for a bit, yeah. I think my, my, my problem with it is, I think they're quite good at, like, opening people up to transcendence, but then they have a very narrow interpretation of that. If you have an ecstatic experience, it must point you to Jesus. Like, Jesus is the answer. And, and any other kind of past the ecstatic are, are, are suspicious or possibly demonic. So that, that was really the stumbling block for me. You know, I came back to a kind of sympathetic pluralism where I thought, yes, OK, this is that's a really good path which helps people beyond the ego. And it tries to encourage them towards things like love and charity. But what I didn't like was the, the narrowness of it and the suspicion of other paths. So that was a problem. I but guess, did you find it sort of slightly scary in sort of retrospect that you had this sort of moment where you went you know you announced on your blog yeah like Nicky Gumbel's got me I'm a Christian I you know yeah. this is this is the real deal and then that sort of wearing off and the skepticism the sense that actually there was something that was a sort of almost a kind of sales process going on yeah that was a really that was a difficult year <laughs> you know, like declaring yourself a kind of born again Christian and then deciding, you know, publicly <laughs> and then deciding you're not. So the so lesson there is if, if you're a blogger, you know, wait a few months before you announce it. I mean, yeah, I think so. So here's my one of my issues with, with charismatic Christianity is they're very into getting people to make public commitments to Jesus right in the midst of ecstatic kind of services. And as I say in the book, that's a bit like you know, proposing to someone in Vegas when they're really drunk. I just think it's a bit of a, a bit of a hard sell, you know. And so, like, they were very keen to get me up on stage and tell me how much, you know, to tell everyone how much Jesus helped me and so on. So I, I did think there was something a bit kind of pressure selling, a bit boiler room about that. But one of the things I think is very interesting in the book is you seem to be quite open to the idea that some of these ecstatic experiences might put you in touch with the numinous. I mean, that rather than saying, you know, this is a physiological mm-hmm. or psychological effect, or, I mean, you talk about a sort of Jungian schema where perhaps what it does is it lowers the threshold of consciousness so that all the your subconscious, all your yeah. unconscious can kind of come up and mm-hmm. be processed properly. But you never quite, quite commit to, you know, I mean, you've got, you've got a lovely bit where you say, point out that people who trip on DMT all seem to see mechanical elves. And, you know, maybe the mechanical <laughs> elves are real, you know. Yeah, so on the one hand, I didn't want to come down. I, I, I was trying to build a broad church for this book. I don't know if that succeeded, but I wanted to say that these kind of experiences happen to atheists, agnostics, Christians, pagans, Stoics, and so forth. And they come to different interpretations of them, but let's be more open and accepting and sympathetic to this kind of area of experience. So I was trying to do that for one thing. And secondly, I didn't 
Who knows, right? I mean, I, I think I don't really know exactly what we connect to when we go beyond the ego, whether it's some kind of, you know, higher state of consciousness or whether it's some kind of impersonal God, nor do I know what happens to us after we die. So these, you know, these are... These are yeah, if, if you do know, it'll be a good scoop for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, but I think, I think it's okay to be agnostic about that. It's okay not to know. So at the moment we have, you know, say a kind of materialist science who might say these experiences are definitely just processes in your brains, perhaps connected to, say, kind of epilepsy or this or that or the other. Or fundamentalist religion saying these experiences are definitely just Jesus or just Allah. So I think there's a space to, for, for that kind of open, sympathetic agnosticism, you know, in our culture. And, I mean, what I... What well, I one thing that does yeah. seem to have in common, a lot of them are to do with connections to, you know, there's something larger. I suppose it could be, you know, something religious or numinous, but it, it's also very often it's other human beings. It's kind of crowd thing, that sort of yeah. dissolution into, you know, music or, yeah. you know, dancing in a mosh pit or at a rave yeah. or at the worst a sort of Nuremberg rally you know you're yeah. that casting off the shackles I mean do you think there's a sort of psychological thing to do with community at the root of it I think that's a big part of it I think at the root of it is an intimation that we are bigger than our little egos that that we you know that that we actually have a more expanded sense of identity and we are searching for that and we don't entirely know what that is so it's a search for who we really are as it were our true identity and you know it's a looking for that greater self but you know I think we have the sense that we're more than our little kind of egos and we're just kind of searching for what that is but part of that is definitely feeling that we are connected to other people in a deeper way than we usually let on in kind of day-to-day polite conversation that there's a more deep kind of sympathetic connection between us and so this kind of experience is very important for like social bonding so the sociologist Emil Durkheim you know thought that this was a kind of a fundamental thing that religion did create spaces for what he called collective effervescence where we go out of our little selves and and feel kind of jubilantly bonded to one another in love yeah, and I think that's that. He was worried that with the decline of religion, where do we get that kind of experience? And he thought maybe we get it through the worship of the state, which didn't work out, you know, so well, well no. in, in the forties. But I think one of the, I mean, I write one of the pleasures of this book was writing about, you know, rock and roll and, and rave music and stuff after after several years of Greek philosophy. That was a pleasure to write about that aspect of experience. And I think you know, festivals and and rock and roll and rave played a really important role in our culture in the last 50 years as a place where we can come together in kind of collective effervescence and feel, get out of our heads, get back into our bodies and get into a kind of bigger sense of, of us. Yes, you say, say that actually, the, I think somewhere near the beginning of the book, that sort of 20th century West is one of the few places and times in human history that hasn't had, a, you know, maybe until rock and roll came along. Yeah. That sort of a ritualized outlet for ecstasy yeah i mean i think you're on this podcast you're talking to people writing about the reformation i don't know if that's this week later on, on yeah. later on right so i mean one of the one of the reasons for that i think is is contemplation is, is, has always been an important way that people have explored what's beyond the ego if you look in in the kind of middle ages contemplatives christian contemplatives would turn out these kind of um maps these for, for kind of exploring consciousness for going you know through the self for trying to find ecstatic experiences and and and, and a deeper sense of identity and do those parallel the buddhist texts that also provide kind of maps yeah 
And these weren't just for for monks. These were these were often written for lay people too. I mean, so kind of medieval bestsellers. But there was one called like um, the Little Book of Eternal Wisdom. It sounds like something you'd find next to the uh, yes. book till in Waterstones. And these were like practical maps for inner exploration. I think one of the issues with the Reformation was the loss of those collective maps for inner exploration. I mean, the Reformation found new ways. There's always, as soon as you block one avenue for ecstatic exploration, you know, because it's a fundamental need, it turns out other avenues. So very soon after the Reformation, we create new ways to get out of our heads. You know, you have the theatre and, you know, the globe as a, as a new terrain for a, a kind of more sceptical ecstasy. Um, you have poetry, this great flowering of, of English poetry, people like you know George Herbert John Donne and they're kind of like mystics in a way they're creating like ecstatic as I I put it in the book they're mystics without portfolio so they're operating you know in a way that monks would have used to do they're operating just out in in London turning out these ecstatic scripts for readers but you you had a go at the monkey thing didn't you I mean there's yeah, but which which almost terrified me much more than the descriptions of the psychedelics or even the sex parties or the you know was that going to a retreat where you meditate all day every day without saying anything mm. and was that as deadly dull as it sounds? Yeah, it was often really dull, <laughs> and you couldn't uh, read. And your love books like me, right? And that was absolutely uh, that was uh, you know I mean. So the meditation was actually, the hours of meditation were okay. I mean, there was, you know, this was a Vipassana retreat I went on. One day, an entire day, we spent meditating on our noses. Uh, that, that was day two. And the weird thing is, you get, you, your attention gets quite trained. Even someone like me, who's completely easily distracted. Within one day, the quality of your attention changes. So, you know, you can actually do that. You can meditate just on your nostrils and the breath going in and out for an hour. So that's quite interesting, how quickly the quality of your attention can change through some basic training like that. But it was the bits in between that were so boring. Like, because I didn't, I, I mean, I literally, I was reading the back of shampoo bottles and stuff like that. I went to the person, you know, running the retreat and said, please, can I read, you know, have you got anything I could read, any literature and stuff? And I would just kind of stare out the window. And, you know, so that was really tough. But I mean, it's quite interesting in just 10 days, how much your consciousness can shift when you take away speaking to each other when you take away books and smartphones and stuff like that like just in that time your consciousness can really shift there's that Elliot line isn't there about distracted from distraction by distraction yeah right and so in 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 india for example it would be it's very normal for people to go to an ashram repeatedly throughout their lives and even possibly to kind of retire to one after they've they've finished their business it's only in our culture that that became odd and weird to retreat and to spend you know moments in your life of retreat and silence but one of the things that's happened since the 60s really is this return of contemplation but it's all been now called mindfulness isn't it? yeah it's all eastern forms of contemplation but i think that's a really healthy thing for our culture that after you know 300 years of, of post-reformation suspicion of the of contemplation it's it's become more normal like how many friends of yours do yoga or are yoga teachers i've got about eight friends I try, who are, I try and cut them out of my circle <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, i mean like that's you know that's become more normal it's quite it's it's more normal now to to have gone on a retreat and and so on was there any one of these things that you tried that if you like produced the biggest sort of breakthrough for you in terms of because you, you seem to have had quite a lot of success in terms mm. of reporting getting a sort of feeling of transcendence or ecstasy yeah. in various 
circumstances, but I mean, I, you know, when you were meditating, I think your whole body was suffused with ecstasy, except for your right buttock, which was still sore. <laughs> was was there a kind of champion? Yeah, I would say what stayed with me was meditation. Like not not so much that kind of vipassana type meditation because it's rather hair shirty and austere. At the end of this ten days, they say, "Okay, if you just want to keep it up, keep this up in your life, it's it's very easy. Just meditate for two hours a day. Don't ever drink again. Don't eat any meat. Uh, you know, <laughs> off you go, and that's it. And you're sent out into the world. You know, some kind of you know straightforward type of of, of meditation. I, I I'll do like for half an hour a day, and that's that's kind of stayed with me." The other thing that I think that stayed with me with this book is feeling less awkward about this stuff. Like, so feeling less awkward about talking about the spiritual journey and talking about trying to go beyond the ego and trying to find a kind of integrated form of transcendence in, in one's life. So I, I, I would love if there was a shift in our culture. You know, people talk about the Overton window, yeah. about what's acceptable in public conversation. I would love if that Overton window about spirituality and about ego transcendence gets a bit broadened in our culture so that you know so this becomes something that we can talk about whether we're atheists or or christians or or neo-pagans or whatever that we can we can talk about our need for transcendence so the overton window should be cleansed yes purged and and all should be (laughs) yes seen as it is that is right yeah jules evans thank you very much thanks